the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Oh, ye of little faith. See, <laughs> my poor engineer was concerned because the host wasn't in the show chair as the theme was starting. And I just, you know, started without me, right? <laughs> well, good afternoon, and uh, we're not going to start it without you, that's for sure. You're a big part of the program each and every afternoon, and what a privilege it is for us to spend some time with you, wherever you might be headed, on this um, cool Thursday, the 18th of January. Welcome on board. We've got a pretty full show for you today. Coming up later on in uh, tonight's program, Tim Barton is going to join us from Wall Builders. My goodness, I was just reminiscing here a moment ago that his dad was one of the first guests on this program clear back in 1989, which was difficult for me to do while I was still just a a toddler teething and hosting a talk show. (laughs) Tim's going to be in town for a a special wall builders event that will be taking place at Church of the Highlands in San Bruno this weekend. So we'll get some details for you on that a little bit later on. We're also going to spend some time tonight talking about the value of school choice and educational opportunities as we'll be joined by Cynthia Rachel who is with the Ocean Grove Charter School in San Francisco and we'll talk about innovations in education coming up a little bit later on in the broadcast. This year 2024 marks, in fact, the 30th anniversary of an event that lasted really only about 100 days, but in many regards left a deep and painful scar on the continent of Africa. I'm referring to the Rwandan massacre and genocide. 100 days triggered by the assassination of president of Rwanda on the heels of about three years of civil war that unleashed horrors that, quite frankly, on the scale hadn't been seen since the killing fields of Cambodia in the 1970s and in the German concentration camps in the 1940s. Many would think that this would be a subject matter of which we would want to, at one level, Remember, so that it never is repeated again. But for survivors, survivors perhaps best trying to forget these terrible dark days in the history of Rwanda. But my first guest tonight has instead decided to become very public about very personal pain and a very personal challenge, a challenge of escaping genocide in Rwanda 
and finding a home in America. It is a story of courage, a story of resilience, a story of faith, and a story of hope. And today, to share her story, we're joined by Dr. Clementine Masigi. Dr. Clementine Masigi is on the faculty of the Center for Doctrinal Studies and Educational Leadership at Lamar University in Beaumont, Texas. And Dr. Masigi, thank you so much for taking time to spare share your story with us tonight. Thank you so much, Craig. I'm very excited to be here. Wow. Going back uh, 30 years now, since the horror of all of this unfolded in March, April of 1994, and I I, I guess the first and most uh, compelling question, no doubt, even on the minds of our listeners, when you think about organized genocide, which is what took place, and, and, and literally Rwandans killing fellow Rwandans that led to, my goodness, upwards of, well, at at a minimum, 800,000 dead, um, some estimates as many as a million in just a little over three months. Why go public with a story like this? That's a a very good question. Uh, Your introduction, you mentioned it's almost 30 years. It's hard for me to believe it's almost 30 years because the memories are still fresh. So it has taken me 30 years to process it and reflect about these experiences. Then I asked myself and I asked God, why did you spare me? Why was I spared? So I pondered a lot about that question. And I was compelled to share this story, believing that maybe there may be someone else out there who might be suffering or who might have gone through difficult times, who might find some courage and inspiration by hearing my story. So that's what prepared me to release this memoir. People hear about this experience, and I I mentioned just some of the details. I don't want to get too deep into history here, but for the benefit of listeners, understanding, as I mentioned, there had been a civil war in Rwanda in the early 90s that finally got somewhat settled. And then with the assassination of the president in 1994, that triggered what had been a powder keg. And it was a powder keg that resulted in the outright attacks and massacres of, as I mentioned, upwards of 800,000, nearly 1 million uh, Tutsis at the hands of the majority Hutus. And when it was all said and done, left a permanent scar in many respects on that nation. And I guess the question that some would ask, um, and for the benefit of listeners, you should know that Nathan Masigi was raised in a Christian home. And some would say, in and through all of this, much like other horrific events that I referred to earlier, the killing fields of Cambodia, the massacre of millions of Jews in Eastern Europe in the 1940s, a lot of people have got to ask the question, well, this clearly has to be evidence that God doesn't exist, because if God existed, why would he allow someone to go through an experience like this, or as in your case, to see the tragic loss of your parents and a number of your siblings? 
that's a that's a good question that I myself uh, reflected on after actually during the genocide itself when I was trying to hide from one place to another knowing how intense this was people chasing me and chasing everybody who was a Tutsi to eliminate them there are many times I asked God why have you forsaken me why have you forgotten us why 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 and there was even a time I wondered, do, should I really continue to trust in this God who doesn't care? But those questions ended because I know even in our difficult moments, God is still God. He doesn't change. So he gave me the strength to bear it, to continue to find hope and to move forward. And for that reason alone, I can tell you that if I did not have God, I would have completely fell in despair. And I would imagine as I, as I parsed through your book, Spared, Escaping Genocide in Rwanda and Finding a Home in America, that um, sometimes we want the big single event miracle that prevents horror and tragedy from ever even happening, and yet oftentimes God will, in response to sin condition and man's sinful nature, which is really at the core of why this tragedy began in the first place, that God will show up in so many ways, both great and small, and oftentimes it's the the accumulation or culmination of a multiplicity of miracles that demonstrates that throughout the pain and the suffering and the anguish that he was there all the time. For the benefit of listeners, uh, Clementine, spend a moment, if you would, and talk to us a bit about your family. I understand you had six siblings? I were seven total, and um, uh, four of them did not make it, and our parents did not make it. But we, we were blessed to have four of us who survived the genocide. So we are grateful. And, and the fact that that many of you were even able to survive is phenomenal, given how systematic uh, this genocide was. I understand that you you literally were running from friends and neighbors and having to hide out in homes, and and that that journey until you finally were able to escape um, to a, a a camp operated by French peacekeepers. That that ran what almost three months long for you. That's right. Almost three months old. I remember when I left my home, I didn't think that it was going to be a long time. I just left my home to go to a friend. I thought I would come back and see my family. I never came back. I never said goodbye. So I had to decide immediately, who can I trust now? Who is willing to hide me? Who among my friends can take this act of kindness and keep me safe while this genocide is taking place. So that's why I continue to hide from one home to another. And I say that's a miracle itself to have even found a few people of faith who were willing 
take that stand. And I think it's important that people understand that uh, this was not just necessarily uh, casual, non-discriminatory type uh, killing, that in fact it was very specific, very targeted. If I recall correctly in the early pages of Spared, uh, wasn't it someone who had came and given a warning to your own father, indicating that you had been targeted specifically for killing? Right, yeah, it was my father's friend. Um, I left just a few days before the, the killing began in our town. Uh, the killing of the Tutsis had already began in the other big cities, uh, but we lived in a small town. And a friend uh, came and knocked at our door, told our dad that me and my other sister were targeted. Mm. So not knowing exactly what we are targeted for, and my father trying to figure out the information, he told me, I want you to go to your friend and stay there for the night while we try to figure out what's happening. And I never came back to see them. Sadly, throughout this terrible journey, uh, as you mentioned, you lost both some of your siblings as well as uh, both your mother and your father. And at one point before you, you eventually left Rwanda and um, sought refuge for a season in uh, Kenya before making your way ultimately to the United States, um, you had a chance to go back to your home village and found your family home, the home in which there had been uh, love and family gatherings and and um, many memories made that your your family home had been literally totally destroyed. That's right. I actually never had a chance to go back. Um, when I was trying to leave my town, they were moving me to another town because the search was so intensified in my town and they were hunting for any survivor who was still roaming around uh, home search, every home trying to eliminate everybody who may have survived. Uh, We're talking about these people have killed children, mothers, handicapped, everything. So they wanted to completely eliminate. So this uh, wonderful uh, family that was uh, trying to keep me safe they decided to move me to another town. So as we began to leave where I've been hiding for almost uh, two and a half months, that's when I passed through our home that I had completely destroyed. Mm. I did not even recognize it. I didn't even think it was my home. But I had no time to grieve or to even look at it. We had to hurry before they can catch me and kill me. So that's the last scene of my home. One of the more shocking, amazing aspects of this story is, and you've just touched on it, going through this pain, this agony, the rush of constant fear, constantly being in hiding for your very life, knowing that there was a systematic program that was being uh, dispersed by the Hutus across the entirety of Rwanda to seek out and to kill every minority Tutsi they could find, representing about 14% of the population. And they were tragically successful at um, taking the lives of over 800 to upwards and some estimates of a million people and all of this occurring inside of just a three-month period of time. Very little opportunity to 
try to begin to even grieve or understand exactly what is going on here as every moment you're just simply trying to escape with your life. The book is called Spared, Escaping Genocide in Rwanda and Finding a Home in America. This year of 2024 marks the tragic 30th anniversary since the Rwandan genocide. And uh, we're sharing today the story of a survivor who's not only gone from being a survivor to a thriver. Dr. Clementine Masigi is with us today. We'll take a very brief time out. We'll come back to more of the conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Dr. Clementine Masigi with us today. Her new book just about to be released called Spared, Escaping Genocide in Rwanda and Finding a Home in America. Dr. Masigi, I know that early on, undoubtedly, um, seeing how widespread this genocide, these killings had been, uh, you must have early on come to the conclusion as you were separated from your siblings that uh, perhaps none of them had survived. But we talked earlier about God showing up in little mini miracles all along the way. One of those miracles was the discovery that your sister Muriel had survived. Tell us a bit about that experience. That was uh, a time after we ha- I had already survived. Uh, I mean, I had already uh, driven to the French peacekeepers, and then we were in the hands of the RPF uh, at that point. Um, when we were talking with other survivors who were hurting, who were wounded, and we were trying to comfort one another, trying to ask whether any of us know where our families or our loved ones are. So it's during that time when I heard rumors that it's possible that one of my siblings uh, survived. So the search continued uh, with uh, the new leadership at the time and you were able to reunite. It was a, it was a great a great day for us. And um, one of your brothers, you were also able to reunite with. Yes, uh, one of our brothers was an international student in the U.S. at the time. Um, when the genocide was taking place, he was here studying. He watched the whole killing on television, wow. like everybody's. He would go to his apartment from his classes and he would watch television as his people, knowing his family and his people are being killed. That's what happened to him. He wasn't even there to, he watched it um, miles, miles away. It was, it was heartbreaking for him as well. But we thank God he wasn't in Rwanda. Who knows? I, I am so glad he wasn't there. Yeah, miraculously, looking back on all of this, I mean, it's it's fascinating, I think, to see the ways in which God showed up, proved himself to be faithful, even in the face of such such pain, such tragedy. Uh, the fact that your brother Zachary was, in fact, here in the United States when all of this tragedy began to unfold and, and ultimately was able to play a very important hand in bringing you to the United States. And I'm just curious, as you look back on this, and I, I apologize that we've got such short time today. We should have had two hours to talk about your story, but trying to kind of just condense 
against this and, of course, encourage listeners to uh, go online to Amazon.com and order a copy of the book uh, for themselves. Again, the book is called Spared, Escaping Genocide in Rwanda and Finding a Home in America. But as you look back over the totality of this experience, what are some of the important takeaways um, of your experience that you'd like to share with our listeners here? There's so many takeaways that I came up after this this whole tragedy. Um, as I lived it, as I processed it, I could not just remain the same. Uh, one of the main things I came up is as a lesson for me is always to thank God for what we have today. Thank God for the gift of life. Because things changed for me instantly and for many other people who were never spared to share their stories. And the second thing is I did not walk through this by myself. I know God was with me. Uh, it's difficult for some people to believe, you know, if he was there, why did this happen? But he was there. And he was with me, whether I felt it or not, he was there. And then the people who walked with me, in this time of tragedy, this huge amount of hate, it's easy to lose hope in humanity. But my, my story demonstrates that we still have good people who are compassionate, who are willing to stand up and take actions against evil. So those are the main message for me. What about the main message for the rest of us? Um, it, it's difficult to process, to fathom even an inkling of what you have gone through and survived through. And I look at all of the events that have happened since the Rwandan massacre in 1994 and even look at present day and see wars going on between, for example, Russia attacking Ukraine, um, the, the, the terrible attack of Hamas against Israel and seeing the number of lives being lost in the Middle East, even as we speak. What would be the message, the, the, the one resounding message that you would share, particularly with Christians today, as we look at these events continuing to unfold, perhaps not to any degree as, as, as severe or, or the tragic level of loss of life as what was experienced in Rwanda at that time, but, but, but if you could share a message, if there's a warning here in your own experience for the rest of us, the rest of the world, what would that be? I think what happened to me was kind of already existing. It was there. People could feel it. They could sense it. Um, It did not necessarily surprise people because instability has been already there. So my message would be, how can we as Christians, how can we uh, take actions that could prevent such things to happen, that could lead to peace, that could possibly help rebuild or create reconciliation so there is not so much division that we have this unity as the body of Christ. We see so much stoking of anger and frustration and um, the the further marginalization of people that perhaps are, don't look like us, don't speak like us, don't think like us, and yet nevertheless are still fellow human beings. 
nevertheless are still individuals for whom Christ died. And maybe one of the most important messages, you know, so often the the cry following the totality of, of the events of World War II and the genocide that took place there at the hands of the Germans against so many in Europe was that it should never, ever happen again. Though sadly, there have been events very similar sometimes to shocking proportions, much as what described the events of Rwanda of 30 years ago, where it has happened again. And the ongoing demonstration of man's ultimate inhumanity demonstrated toward mankind, fellow mankind, and that this is all a product of sin nature. And for us as a believer, part of the prowling cry really needs to be, what is our role in impacting a lost and dying world for the sake of the gospel? And what can we do, Um, even whether it be breaking up a fight from neighbors across the street to doing what we can to prevent people from fighting across the world? How can we do that in order to live a God-honoring life and to do all that we can to bring about harmony that can only happen through changed lives, which is only a result of changed hearts? It's a page-turner book. No doubt uh, to imagine a young girl like this going through this kind of experience, coming out on the other side and standing strong to say that nevertheless, though he slay me, I will still serve him. That is one of the core messages of this new book called Simply Spared, Escaping Genocide in Rwanda and Finding a Home in America. Dr. Masigi, I apologize. We've just scratched the surface today. Hopefully we can have you back again and we can spend some more time because I think there's much about your story that the rest of us can learn from. And I want to again thank you for your time and your candor and encourage listeners. This is a valuable book. And especially as we raise young generations to better understand what's going on in the world around us and what our role is in influencing that world to the positive as Christians, might be a good book for a son or a daughter. Teach them some very important life lessons. Again, the book is called Spared. It will be released officially on the 23rd of January, available through the usual suspects, including through Amazon.com. Information available on the web, by the way, about Dr. Clement. Masigi's work at drclem.com. That's doctor abbreviated drclem.com. Dr. Clementine Masigi, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Thank you for having me. Wow, what a story. And um, I hope that uh, that leaves you with a slightly heavy heart, as well it should. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation. And as we turn the corner looking at uh, issues closer here to home, yeah, oftentimes I I wonder, you read what's going on in the body politic these days and uh, many of the challenges that we are facing as a nation. And as we look at some of the things even being debated, whether they be in the halls of Congress or before the United States Supreme Court, I oftentimes wonder to myself if the founding fathers could come back today, if they were uh, suddenly here with us and could take a look around, would they even recognize America in 2024 as the same nation that they sacrificed so much for to help found? 
And uh, as we can all ponder the answer to that question, uh, what about understanding better the intention of the Founding Fathers and uh, this tremendously rich heritage that we have been given and hopefully we'll be able to do a better job to protect it? One of the organizations that for many, many years has helped to educate people on those very facts is Wall Builders. And um, as I mentioned earlier in the program tonight, there's going to be a special Wall Builders event hosted at Church of the Highlands in San Bruno. That'll be coming up this weekend, Saturday from 9 until noon. And then um, speaking at the Sunday services at 8.30, 10 and 11.30 a.m. is the president of Wall Builders, Tim Barton. Tim, welcome. Good to have you with us. Well, thanks for having me on. It's my pleasure to be yeah, here. Yeah, I was uh, thinking a bit about wall builders in preparation for uh, the program today. And uh, I remember your dad, David, coming on this program when we first launched it here in San Francisco, clear back in 1989, which I guess wow. makes both he and I a couple of old guys. But <laughs> in any event, warm memories of, um, of spending time in those early days of uh, wall builders with your dad on this radio program and certainly looking forward to your visit to the San Francisco Bay Area. Wow, if we talk about the changes that have been seen in America since the Founding Fathers to where we're at today, even over the course of the last 30-something years of the history of wall builders, we've seen a lot of changes in America. And sadly, Tim, not all of them good. No, we, we, we certainly have seen a... a Disconnect from the foundation of our nation unquestionably. You know, for people paying attention, you can look at, at some of the very intentional moves that leaders have made, and that can be leaders inside of academia. You, you can go back to when progressives took over, and, and education has changed so much uh, for parents, you know, who went to school back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Looking at what schools are teaching today, it's just it's mind boggling. And so we've definitely transitioned even in the last 30, 40, 50 years from what used to be some pretty basic knowledge about the nation. It, it used to be if you grew up in the 70s, 80s and 90s, it, patriotism was a, a normal, common thing. It wasn't weird to, to despise America or hate America. But for the rising generation, it, we're, we're just teaching such different things, a lot of it very dishonest. And the very foundations of our nation are under attack. Maybe quite intentionally, maybe people in their ignorance, but there's no doubt that we have to remember and restore some of that foundation that helped this nation be so unique for so long. You know, I, I recall conversations with your dad back in the day about the the danger of the so-called um, frog in the kettle sort of uh, example, that, that slow incremental change like the rising temperature of the proverbial frog mm-hmm. in the kettle might not necessarily be noticed early on, but eventually you're going to reach a boiling point, and by that time, well, it's simply too late, and certainly a big part of that describes where we've been at in this nation, morally, spiritually, um, even intellectually, over the last uh, many, many years, and you know what I find remarkable? I'm a big fan of history, and I look at times in American history where we were willing to go to the front lines and fight battles for other people on other shores, on 
on other continents because we so much valued the importance of freedom and liberty and democracy. And yet here today we find that one of the biggest battlefields for democracy is not fighting in Europe during World War One or even World War Two, but rather the fights that we see here at home. And I'm curious, from your perspective, Tim, uh, what needs to be done to, to reverse this trend, to, to stem this tide before the proverbial frog gets cooked to death? <laughs> Yeah, you know, one of one of the important things in connecting these dots, and it's such a good question, I'm glad you asked it, is it, it, a lot of people are thinking we have to defend the Bill of Rights, right? Our freedom of religion, our freedom of speech, maybe the Second Amendment, and people look at the Bill of Rights, the Constitution, maybe even the Declaration, but, but it's interesting, George Washington, after he had been president for two terms, and, and he'd been the leader of the nation, without George Washington, we, we probably don't win the American Revolution. Without George Washington, we, we probably don't get a U.S. Constitution. Without George Washington as president, we would probably never know what a president should do or shouldn't do or what a peaceful transfer of power looks like when this guy just willingly, voluntarily steps down and says, all right, it's time for somebody else to lead. One of the most remarkable people in our nation's history, unquestionably. But as he was leaving, he gave his final thoughts to the nation in what was known as his farewell address. And in the farewell address, he, he told America that religion and morality were the indispensable support of our political prosperity, meaning if our nation is going to succeed politically, there has to be a foundation rooted on a religious and moral foundation. And the founding fathers weren't confused uh, about what religion that might be. They, they weren't ambiguous about this. They were very clear. It was the foundation of the, the principles of Christianity and the foundation of the Bible. John Adams, actually, the following year when he was president, he wrote a letter where he said that our Constitution was made only for a moral and a religious people. It's wholly inadequate to the government of any other. So one of the main problems we're having in our nation is not just that we're ignoring the Constitution or we've forgotten about the, the separation of powers and the checks and balances and three branches of government. It's not that we've forgotten basic civics. It's that we have lost the foundation that allows freedom to work. The Founding Fathers' vision for America was freedom for the people, but freedom only works if you have a moral people. Because if you give freedom to immoral people, all they do is immoral things, and then freedom doesn't work. So the Founding Fathers knew the, the only way our nation survives is if we maintain a structure, a foundation of religion and morality. And then I actually go through dozens, if not maybe hundreds, of very specific examples where they cite religion and morality as a necessity for freedom. And I think as we look at our nation today, we are becoming an increasingly secular nation. And there are people very intent on secularizing the rising generation, making sure that people don't believe in God and, and, and that even the notion of truth, that, that you know, truth becomes subjective and it's, it's up to the individual and, and truth becomes really personal. Well, this is my truth. And so we've rejected a standard of truth. We, we've rejected a standard of morality. People don't even know how to determine what's right and wrong anymore. If we're going to save the nation or turn things around, it, it's not just needing a different political leader. It's understanding the foundation that allows freedom to function. And it's religion and morality, which means we have to get back to a foundation that believes there is truth, that, that there are rights and wrongs, that there are things that are moral, there are things that are immoral. And we have to begin teaching, relearning those ourselves, teaching that to a rising generation so that hopefully we can preserve freedom for the future. And, you know, it's ironic because a big part of that, too, is what seems to be an increasingly 
difficult time and even having the ability to connect the dots. I'll give you an example. Uh, some years ago, this was on the heels of, of one of the multiplicity of school shootings, and uh, I was in a conversation with a progressive who sort of was lamenting where we were and saying, you know, the sad thing is today, even in schools, you know, there there's no respect for teachers. Kids don't respect of their parents. They lie. They steal. Kind of went down this laundry list off the top of this uh, gentleman's head. And I paused for a moment and, and I said, you know, it's too bad we can't even put a reminder out in front of them. Yeah, that's right. You know, like it, it, we ought to be able to even put up a poster that would say, you know, kids, honor your mother and father and, and don't lie, don't steal and so forth. I said, yeah, that would be a brilliant idea. You know, we could maybe come up with a with a list of things to do and not to do. Maybe a list of, I don't know, David Letterman had his top 10 list. Maybe a list of 10 thoughts, suggestions. How about 10, 10 commandments? There you go. And of course, <laughs> by the time we reached that juncture in the conversation, this progressive understood the point that I was making, that there was a time when we did remind children of these valuable ideas and, and the Judeo-Christian ethic. And here we find ourselves all these years later, having worked so hard in some arenas to remove prayer from the classroom, God from the public arena, Bible reading, all of it, even down to saying, oh, we can't post the Ten Commandments. That's endorsing religion. And yet we turn around and lament the very guardrails that biblical teaching and Judeo-Christian ethics used to provide our culture. And then once they've gone and we see the end result, we see the final product, we, we wonder to ourselves, where did we go wrong? Again, that utter ability, inability to connect the dots. It, it really is. And, you know, when, when people look back at the founding fathers, so often we've heard that they were irreligious or atheists or agnostics and deists. And really, people can only believe that if they've never actually read the writings of the founding fathers, because these were people who were very connected in their faith. They, they knew without God they would never succeed. They, they couldn't defeat the most powerful military in the entire world, which the British were at that time, except they knew as Benjamin Franklin acknowledged, with a firm reliance on divine providence, as was written in the Declaration, right, with a firm reliance on divine providence, we mutually pledge with each other our lives, fortune, sacred honors. They knew without God's help they would never succeed. And, and, and even this notion of religion and morality, they, they were not requiring, they didn't mandate that everybody be a Christian, that everybody has to love Jesus, but they knew there has to be a system of morals universally that we are teaching and promoting, because it can't be subjective. We, we have to have a, something that we collectively agree this is the standard we're going to use because that allowed freedom to function. And this is something that certainly, when, when, when I have a chance to be out in California here in just a couple of days, I'm really excited to dive into some of this and, and show from the founder's actual writings where I can imagine people hear some of this and they're like, I'm not sure about that. I gladly encourage people to challenge what I'm saying because I will show you the actual letters. I'll show you the actual documents and books where they wrote this because I don't want somebody to take my word for it. People know they've been lied to. I mean, over the last couple of years, people really know there's a lot of dishonesty in the media. There's a lot of dishonesty from politicians. I don't want us to continue to blindly follow just because somebody said, I want to help guide people to say, here's the actual writings. Here's what they actually said. I want to help people know the truth does exist. It is knowable, discoverable. And certainly when it comes to the history of this nation, the foundation of this nation unquestionably was built on religion and morality found in the principles of Christianity, the teachings of Jesus, and in the Bible. And that's what we have to restore in this nation. And let's pray to God that we're able to follow that truth back to the restoration of our nation, Lisa. 
least we follow a lie right off a cliff. As I mentioned, uh, Tim Barton, president of All Builders, is going to be here in the San Francisco Bay Area. There'll be a special conference being held and hosted at Church of the Highlands, 1900 Monterey Drive in San Bruno, this Saturday, 9 a.m. till 12 noon. And then uh, in addition to that conference, Tim will be speaking on Sunday service times at 8.30, 10, and 11.30 a.m., all again at Church of the Highlands in San Bruno. Complete details, reservations, just check them out online. Go to highlands.us. That's highlands.us. Or you can call area code 650-873-4095. That's 650-873-4095. Or again, details and reservations to be a part of uh, Tim Barton's workshop this Saturday, again from 9 until 12 noon at Church of the Highlands in San Bruno. Our thanks to Tim Barton, President of All Builders, for being with us. And Tim, we appreciate the time and look forward to your visit here to the San Francisco Bay Area this weekend. Check it out online again at highlands.us. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You know, as I think of it, ironically, some of the issues in relationship to what Tim Barton was talking about just a moment ago uh, do, in fact, find their roots in some of the failures we've seen in government education. And, and whether you blame it on lack of funding, um, lack of accountability, uh, overcrowding, all of that, and perhaps more, and it varies, of course, from area to area. Now, to be sure, there are some public schools that do a fine job and turn out well-educated children and are, are, you know, should be applauded for what they do, but that's certainly not all. And parents on an increasing basis are looking for options of where they can find schools um, where there is greater uh, emphasis on the quality of the education and the success of the child. Well, one such school that fits that uh, that uh, description, I think, quite nicely is Ocean Grove Charter School in San San Francisco, and joining me now is the marketing director for Innovative Education Management, Cynthia Rachel with Ocean Grove. And Cynthia, welcome. Good to have you with us. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. When we talk about some of the 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 aspects of a quality education, I know everybody kind of has a different idea, whether it be you know low student to teacher ratio or uh, you know a- emphasis on on uh, um, students being able to learn at their own pace, things of this sort. But but give me from your perspective as a professional, give us a, a bit of a glimpse into some of the things that really makes a school like Ocean Grove different and unique in its features that is helping to create such quality outcomes for the students. Definitely. So Ocean Grove is a personalized learning public charter school. That means that we're tuition free and our students are educated at home and in their community through local businesses that we partner with. So it looks very different from the traditional school that many of us experience um, in our own childhood. So a lot of our families identify as homeschoolers, but they are in fact enrolled with Ocean Grove. They work with a credentialed teacher and then one of the really integral parts is that the parents are directly involved in the education of their children on a daily basis. So those questions about what is my child learning at school, what are the conversations that they're experiencing or being exposed to, those 
those questions uh, are not as prevalent in our setting because the families are directly involved in the learning. You know, I think that's so important because there, there's oftentimes this misconception that, you know, parents are busy. Oftentimes they have careers. We see a large percentage of, of uh, two-parent families that are both working. And so the idea somehow that when a child reaches a certain age, it's time to kind of pass the proverbial baton along, meaning, you know, well, time for our son or daughter to get educated. We'll send them to school and uh, we'll, we'll just wait for the results as the, as the report cards roll in. But that, that is such a, a myopic, disoriented, frankly, in my opinion, um, approach to education that it really truly is a partnership, not only in terms of parental awareness, but that, that parental involvement can also help create greater outcomes for the child's performance, can't it? Yes, uh, we absolutely believe that parents play a key role in the educational experience of their children. And we know in some cases that means that the parent's role is um, maybe less of a primary person in education if they do need to choose to send them to um, a site-based school. And there's a different relationship there. But our goal is that our parents are involved as much as they feel comfortable to do and then if there's things that they don't feel comfortable or they they're questioning their own ability we have the credentialed teachers there to support them and to guide them in that process so that they aren't trying to figure out how to do it all by themselves but they really are one of the key the key pieces of when we look at the success of a child is what was the parent's relationship to their educational experience and it's important, I think, for parents to understand when we talk about partnership, that doesn't mean that you're going to have to, uh, you know, at the end of the evening, sit down with your son and teach him trigonometry. <laughs> but what it does mean yeah. is greater involvement, which leads to greater awareness, which leads to greater degrees of accountability and understanding that that in that sense of partnership is going to lead to, to better outcomes for a quality education for a child. When we talk about the matter of parental involvement, one of the things that often comes up is, well, parents are busy, crazy schedules. I understand there's some flexibility built into what Ocean Grove offers uh, that that really is, is a tremendous benefit for both parents and students. Tell us about that. Yes, the flexibility is key because you're no longer constrained to... I have to have, you know, we have to be out the door by 8 a.m. and then we have to make, you know, we only get home at 4 or 5 or 6 p.m. and we only have a couple hours together. Your day really opens up in our setting and you can build the school day in in the way that fits the needs of your families. We have many families that one of the, the parents might work uh, graveyard shift or, you know, the nocturnal or swing shift and they can develop a schedule within their household that meets their students' needs academically while taking into consideration the needs within their family and the availability in their schedule to have out of the house um, educational opportunities, engaging with other students, attending classes at local businesses, and all of that 
flexibility is because we aren't saying that school only occurs between 8 a.m. and 3 p.m. and, you know, parents exist outside of that time. We're saying all of that can exist together to create lifelong learners when they no longer see school as a place that you go, but education as a part of your life. Absolutely. And, and you know, toward that degree, even as uh, an old guy here, I have fond memories of things like field trips, extracurricular activities that added not only to the richness of my educational experience, but opened up some additional horizons uh, that, quite frankly, have influenced my life to this very day. And, of course, I understand that that's an important part of the overall educational experience at Ocean Grove that includes kids being involved with a variety of of activities, be it field trips, uh, extracurricular activities, as we mentioned, clubs and things of that sort. Uh, One of the other things I understand is, is a hallmark in terms of of the flexibility and the totality of the educational experience is the access that is offered to students of things like online resources and webinars that that really turns the internet instead of being just a waste of time to a, a very valuable educational tool. Absolutely. So we are, um, by technicality, we are not an online school, but we offer a significant number of online opportunities for our students all the way through uh, classes for our high school students. We have daily live instructional opportunities for our little guys, too. We are a transitional kindergarten through 12th grade school and so we we cover the whole range and in that they can participate in online clubs they can take classes online you mentioned you know a parent might not want to teach trigonometry to their children uh you know so we do have specialists that are certificated and highly qualified to teach those classes that some of the parents think oh i took trigonometry before but i don't know if i remember it now uh so There are a lot of options available so that if you would like to have online experiences as a part of your educational program for your children, it absolutely can be, but it's not a requirement of our school for students to take classes online. So there really is that that theme of flexibility to meet the needs and the, the family goals. And again, the ability to have that to help to supplement the the in-class experience and their extracurricular experiences, vitally important. For parents that are considering making a change and they'd like to get more information about um, Scholastic Life at Ocean Grove Charter, tell us a bit how they can get in in touch with you. Sure. So, uh, you know, everybody loves to Google things. So you can always Google Ocean Grove Charter School. Our website is ogcs.org. So it's oceangrovechartersschool.org. And we have virtual information sessions that we host every month. We also have a recorded information session on our website. So families can log in at any time and watch that uh, recorded session to learn more about our school, the instructional funding, the classes we have, the teachers that support them, the support for students who receive special education services or English learner services. We have all of that information included, and the website really is a great resource for that. And again, you can check them out online, ogcs.org. Think 
Ocean Grove Charter School, OGCS.org. Our thanks to Cynthia Rachel, Marketing Director for Innovative Education at Ocean Grove Charter School, for being with us today. We appreciate your time and uh, your insights, Cynthia. Six o'clock from KFAX, Pastor Chris G. joins us right around the corner. You'll enjoy our conversation. That is Lifeline Continues. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.